We bless you in his name. Amen. Let's turn together to our sermon text this morning in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Two weeks ago, I uh, preached a sermon that went way too long. This is shorter today, Lord willing. I always say Lord willing because I sometimes, if I don't say that, I get in trouble then. So, um, on verses 1 through 8, and last week, uh, Pastor Tomlinson preached on uh, verses uh, 9 through 11, and my wife and I got online last Sunday evening and listened to that wonderful sermon on um, Christ as uh, coming as the mighty God coming to us to be our shepherd. And uh, this morning we're looking at verses 12 through 17, though I'm going to read through verse 18. Pastor Tomlinson next week is planning on beginning with verse 18, but um, verses 12 through 17 are actually leading up to what he'll be dealing with. So I'm just going to read that that first part of his text for next week. So uh, beginning at verse 12, this is God's holy word. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Well, brothers and sisters, does it really matter what we believe about God as long as we believe in God? Well, yes, it matters greatly. Because what we believe about God dictates everything as far as how we relate to him. Uh, If I could illustrate that, Martin Luther, before he was converted to the true gospel, was zealous for God, but he believed God uh, and Jesus in particular was mainly just a judge, uh, a judge who held the strict justice. And Luther, uh, more honest than some of his peers, knew that he was a sinner, and so he could not love God. He could not love Jesus. He's very explicit on this in, his, in what we have of his writings now in his sermons and writing. Uh, he, he couldn't love him. He was, he was a, a strict, righteous judge, and that was good, but Luther was a sinner, and so he just felt condemned by him all the time. And part of Luther getting converted was to learn a right view about who God, and in particular, God the Son, Jesus, is. Once he understood what a merciful God this righteous judge is, uh, it, it changed everything in Luther's relationship to God. The God of the Bible tells us there are many false gods, many false views of deity, but that he is the only true God, and that we come to know him only in that way in which he has made himself known, which we find in the Holy Scriptures. Now we're... Uh, 
chapter 40 begins the second half of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, you're continuing as a congregation to work your way through chapter 40 here. And what we believe about God, picking up especially at this point, my understanding of the text in verse 12, our text for today, he's letting us know that what we believe about, about God is critical to the main theme. The main theme of this whole section is that God is going to come himself And he's also called uh, the one who comes the servant of the Lord. Uh, This whole idea of of incarnation, truly God, truly man, is the only thing that explains sort of a bouncing back and forth between this being the servant of the Lord and yet being the Lord, you see. And he's going to come and he's going to rescue uh, his people from their sin and from the judgment due to them for their sin. And... um, it's important we understand who this God is who comes, that we distinguish him from all false gods. And in this this part of scripture, we find some of the most incredible statements made about who and what the true God really is. The book of Isaiah itself is one of the most oft-quoted of the Old Testament books in the New Testament. This prophet lived right about 700 years before the incarnation, before Christmas, before Jesus came to this earth. He prophesied around 150 years before the Babylonian exile of Judah. He lived and prophesied during the time that the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and exiled by Assyria. One of the main points in chapters 40 through 48 is that the Spirit through Isaiah foretells events that will happen 150 years later, around 200 years later, and around 700 years later. He deals with these these big events that are to come, and he deals with them in great detail. And the text itself, God says that this proves who the true God really is. I happen to be on Isaiah as part of my daily devotions right now. I read through the Bible once a year, and I'm, I'm, you know, it just happens to be in Isaiah. And right around this section, and the, the part I read this morning, God issues this challenge to the idols. You know, he actually says, bring your, um, bring your arguments. And it's the word for like a, a legal argument. So God issues this challenge, Jehovah does. To the, the idols to you know bring your bring your legal charges against me uh, try to prove I'm not the real God and then it goes down further it becomes actually uh, uh, some humor he throws in some sarcasm uh, he, he ends up saying say anything you know do anything uh, and he said there are no words these idols these false views of God or of a God who doesn't exist But here is this God who foretells the Babylonian exile 150 years before it takes place. The return from the exile around 200 years later. The coming of the Son of God and who he is and what he does 700 years later. And foretells it in great detail. As you work your way through Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, one of the things you find that God frequently asks is, and this the the question basically in verse 18 To whom will you liken me? To what will you liken me? And in the immediate context, each time this comes up, the answer is obvious. It's a rhetorical question. Well, no one. No one can compare. Nothing can compare 
to the Almighty God. Now, I believe that chapters 40 through 48 are dealing especially with the first of the great purposes of the incarnation given to us in verse 2, namely that uh, the Son of God has come that our warfare might be ended, that the warfare of God's people, our war against God in particular, uh, there is peace now between God and us because God the Son has come. We're looking at in this chapter at uh, Christmas comfort, or comfort because of what takes place at Christmas, because the incarnation. And in verse 11, uh, Pastor Tomlinson had, had ended with this idea that this big, almighty God, this all-powerful God, uh, says he's gonna, he comes uh, to be a shepherd. And it uses even language so radical as he gathers us up in his arms like lambs, and he gently leads those who are with young. What a statement, especially in light of what we're going to look at today. Who is the heavenly father who sent his only begotten son? And particularly uh, for our purposes today, and I think in the immediate context here, who is the son? Who is the shepherd? It's already affirmed that it's, it's the almighty God coming with a powerful arm is going to make even more direct statements about Christ's deity as, we, as you continue on through Isaiah. Who is this one who's born and laid in the manger in Bethlehem as far as his divine nature? And uh, let me just give you my outline of um, ahead of time here, verses 12 through 18. Uh, of course, I'll be concentrating on verses 12 through 17. But number one, the entire universe is as nothing before the greatness of God, verse 12. That means this, this babe lying in, in the manger... Uh, as far as the fact that he is not only sinless man, but he is the eternal God, the Son, the, the entire universe is so small compared to his power and all that he is, it's as if it's nothing. It is his kind condescension toward us that we would be, even be noticed by him as a universe, much less as individuals, and he has recognized us as individuals. But it's just, it, it, when you really think about how big God is, it, it is truly amazing that he would come for us. And then, secondly, verses 13 and 14, no one can teach the all-knowing God anything he doesn't already know, and no one can give him advice. This is interesting because one of the things I used to say to my congregation at Merrimack when I'd be hitting on the person of Christ is that I, I, I could not understand uh, the psychology of Jesus of Nazareth, psychology with a small p, not the formal science, but you know what, what's going on inside of there? Because we know that a sinless man, he would learn Things. We're told that he grew in knowledge, etc., in his human nature. But as God, he always knew all things. And I don't, I don't understand how it worked for this unified um, person who is so far above us. I can't understand how it worked for him psychologically while he was here on earth. But I do know that the one who came is this all-knowing God. And then thirdly, verses 15 through 17, all the nations are as nothing before Almighty God. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. So that brings us to verse 18. So how dare we think we can compare him to anything in creation by making these dead idols or by inventing our own human views of deity? And uh, in, in Isaiah's day, it was especially these, these idols, these dumb, mute idols that he was contrasting the true God to. But, you know, sinners can create false gods, and we do, if we're not careful all the time, even as Christians, we can do this in our minds without ever making a wooden or stone statue. Wrong views of God, wrong thinking about God is a form of, of idolatry. So first, again, think of this, this one line in the manger as far as his divine nature. The, the entire universe is as nothing before the greatness of God. This is verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Now we're talking about Jehovah God. It's very clear as you read through the text. It's Jehovah who comes. It's the great I am, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God who made himself known to Israel in the Old Testament, uh, who is uh, the one true and living God uh, in the Bible. This is the one we're talking about. And uh, we are told he is the creator and preserver of all creation. That he, he is the creator and the preserver of the universe. And it says here, he measured out the waters and does so in the hollow of his hand. Now, I want you to picture, you know, take your hand and do this. And how much water can you keep in the, in the palm of your hand? You've tried this before, right? Maybe if you were... If you ever drank out of a stream back, if you had a place you could do so safely, you try to, you know, do like this. You, you don't get a lot of water there, do you? It, it doesn't work that way. And yet, God uses that picture then to picture the fact that, that he holds all the water in the hollow of his hand. God is an infinite spirit according to the Bible. He created all matter and energy. He himself does not have a body as God. In Christ... God unites with human nature, and that human nature has a true physical body. But as far as God having an arm as God, or having a hand as God, uh, that's what we call anthropomorphism. This is God speaking in human language to bring himself down to, to our level enough we can begin to get a little grasp of who, who, how big he really is. And uh, so... Here he, he describes this as, you know, he has this hand, he has this palm, and all the oceans, all the lakes, all the rivers, all the streams, all the reservoirs in the universe, he can put it on one hand in the, in the palm. That, that's the picture, the metaphor he's using for us to, to tell us something absolutely true about himself, that he is far above all creation, all created order. That he is, he is the creator of all things and he is in charge of all things. He's also measured the heavens, and that would probably, in this language, refer to the atmosphere and what we call outer space in, in our, our language, with a span. 
which was an instrument for measuring distance, each span being about nine inches long. So you see the picture here. Uh, we're having um, a carport put up, and it was a certain number of feet, you know, uh, high and wide and deep, and it was measured in feet. Um, here it's saying that God has measured uh, the whole universe with an instrument nine inches long and has all the measurements of that. Now, you know, think about what he's telling us there, again, speaking from, from a human point of view. He, we, we would put it in our uh, culture as this. God knows how many feet, measurable feet, comprise all of the universe. Uh, and th by the way, in the Bible, creation, the universe, is not really infinite. Only God is infinite. And all creation can be and is measured by him. But from our perspective, and this just, this makes, this just makes this even more wonderful, from our perspective, the universe that God made and measures is so huge, we can only approach it as if it's infinite. That it is so incredibly big, even though there is a limit to it from God's point of view to our point of view, we could never reach that limit. We can't even hardly picture that limit. It is so big, and yet to God, he's measured the whole thing. And what does this say about God's bigness? Again, think about that, that baby laying in the manger, God the Son. This is, um, this is what we call God's immensity. <laughs> His immensity. He's bigger than all creation that he has made. Uh, and his incomprehensibility. These are, these are formal terms we use in theology. His incomprehensibility doesn't mean we can't know him, but it means we'll never fully take in logically all that he is. We, we could, we could, our minds are, will never be big enough. We'll never have infinite minds. You'd have to have an infinite mind to fully understand him in, in all his ways. He tells us what you and I need to know about him. Everything he tells us is absolutely true. But there's so much more than he's telling us because, quite honestly, we couldn't take in everything. Just like I said about, even about something that he has done in space and time history, the Incarnation. You know, I said, I, I, I can't understand, I don't believe anybody can understand the psychology of Jesus of Nazareth, because see, that is the infinite God meeting up with uh, true human nature. It's the creator uniting with creature at that one point, and I, I can't even understand what all that meant for him. And the, the, you know what we know about God is true, but it's like one little tiny drop in an ocean as to who and what God is. And that's what God's incomprehensibility is about. Notice he also says he's measured all the dust of the earth in a measure. Now, the, the Hebrew measure referred to an instrument of weighing and measuring dry products. And a measure is about one-third of an ephah, and an ephah is a little more than our bushel. So God knows exactly how much dust there is. How much dust there is. God knows how much of every element on earth and throughout the entire universe there is. If, if we wanted to say, God, how, how much gold is there in the whole universe, he, without even having to stop, he, he, he could just tell us exactly how many 
tons of gold there is in the whole universe. And that's true of everything else, too. See, he's bringing out how big the true God really is. And then it says, he has weighed the mountains and the earth in scales and can tell us how big and how much they all weigh individually and together. And the same with all the hills as well, which he has weighed in a balance. Again, this is all human language, isn't it? To bring out God's infinite knowledge and his infinite power. So your picture of scales and God, God knows the weight exactly of every hill and every mountain. We get, are you getting some idea of how really big God is as far as how Isaiah is presenting him here? How foolish to think we ever have a right or an ability to question God or his ways. And yet sinners do this all the time. And all of us at some time or other in our life have probably started to complain in our hearts and we were really questioning God. You know, because of some trial or trouble we experienced or someone we love experienced. But how foolish we are to think that we can question him. Or that we can improve upon him or his ways in our foolish thoughts. Isn't this the point that we cannot measure him? He measures all things. And then secondly, no one can teach the all-knowing God anything that he doesn't already know. So no one can give him advice. And that continues this idea of sinners always wanting to say, well, why did God do this? Or if I was God, it would be done this way. How incredibly wrong as well as foolish that is. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who has directed, counseled, taught God anything? No one. He has made all creatures, all angels, all human beings, all other creatures. We are directed, we are counseled, we are taught by him, not vice versa. His ways, again, are totally beyond our ability to comprehend. Who has directed the spirit of Jehovah? That's what he says here. Who has regulated the spirit of Jehovah? Now, verse 13, where it says, who has directed? Just to let you know, that's the same word in the Hebrew as in verse 12, the second time, not the first time, but the second time he has the word measured. There in verse 12, it's measured heaven with a span. Here it's who has directed the spirit of the Lord. It's the same verb, though. Measured in the sense of apportioned out things and the times, the things and times of creation, which is another way of saying directed or regulated or planned creation. What is and what, what happens from the very first day of creation and on throughout the never-ending ages of eternity are all God's plan and not really the purpose of angels or men. God has never taken direction from any creature in heaven or on earth, and he never will. He is God. Again, we think about how often human beings complain about what God is doing during some difficult time in their life and how blasphemous, if only they had eyes to see how evil it is, what they're doing. He goes on, he says, who has this counselor taught him? With whom did he take counsel? So he could be instructed and taught the path of justice. Again, the answer is no one. He is infinitely just. No one could teach him what justice is. 
It is we who are unjust in our sinfulness and unable to determine right and wrong unless we learn it from him. Surely we see that in our own day as we live in, uh, in some ways, our society as an apostate society. That is a society that had a lot of Christians who believed, uh, many of whom at least gave lip service to the Bible being God's word. I'm talking now back generations. We've turned away from that and look how there is no standard really of absolute right or wrong and how, how, how crazy the world becomes once that takes place. How nothing has structure now as far as moral structure. Uh, God is the one that determines what is right and wrong. We only can even consistently operate on the basis of the fact that there is right or wrong only as uh, we operate in accordance with his standard that he's made known to us. In Isaiah's day, many were complaining about how supposedly Jehovah had let them down. Why didn't he wake up and do what was just and right, and how evil and how foolish that was, says Isaiah. Absolute justice, absolute right and wrong is based on who God is, and on no one and nothing else. We are incapable of teaching him anything as far as how to create or run the universe or our lives. And he doesn't need any help or counsel or teaching. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding, says the prophet? No one. All true knowledge comes from him, whether spiritual or secular knowledge. He needs no instruction. None of us are capable of giving him instruction. And all of us need his instruction. Now, this deals with what we call in theology uh, God's omniscience. He knows everything, always. Uh, there's never been a time he didn't always know all things. His perfect wisdom and his perfect knowledge. He knows all things and he knows always what is best as one who knows all things. He can't be measured for he is infinitely immense and omnipresent, verse 12. He can't be instructed, for he is omniscient, verses 13 and 14. Now, these verses, 13 and 14, are referenced by the Apostle Paul. I'm going to ask you to turn over just briefly here, quickly, to Romans chapter 11. And verses 34 and 35, particularly in Romans 11, the Apostle writes about God's great eternal plan of redemption, about how Jesus Christ is redeemer for both Jews and Gentiles, and how this all-knowing God has worked out this incredible plan of redemption throughout the flow of biblical history. Both Jews and Gentiles are sinners. For both categories of sinners, God has provided for his elect people to be saved. So if we turn over with me, Romans 11, beginning at verse 32, he says, For God has committed them all, you see, Jews and Gentiles, to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then he quotes our text from Isaiah 40. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? And then he sums it all up. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That is, God created all things, he holds it all together, and he's going to bring it all to its proper conclusion. 
So there's no measuring the infinitely immense God and no counseling the omniscient and infinitely wise God. And then, uh, number three, my last main point this morning, all the nations are as nothing before the Almighty God. Look with me again at verses 15 through 17 of Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. And yet God the Son comes for you and for me in the incarnation. He comes and dies for our sins and rises again. And yet that's true of him, that all the nations are as nothing before him as God. We'll come back again to God's bigness. In verse 15, God is incredibly bigger than all the nations of mankind. We're concentrating now on mankind's foolish attempts to create God in their own image and to think they understand justice better than the creator who made us. So we move from the universe in verse 12, we narrow it down to human, the human race, to mankind in particular, verses 15 through 17. The nations, all the nations of mankind, including the United States and America. Uh, we're talking about all the nations from beginning with Adam and Eve all the way down to the very end of history. At all places, at all times, are like a drop in a bucket. Now you always take time with these kind of metaphors and actually picture in your mind a drop in a bucket. If you're thirsty, I mean you're really thirsty, maybe it's middle of summer, you've been uh, working outside mowing grass or something, and maybe it's really, really hot out, maybe it's 95 degrees outside, and you're really, really thirsty, what's a drop going to do? You know, I always think about this with um, how bad hell must be if the rich man in hell begs that Lazarus could come and put a drop of water on his tongue. Hell's got to be really bad if even that sounded like it might do something. Because a, a drop doesn't do anything for us, basically, does it? So I want you to think of a two-gallon bucket. I could have gone with a five-gallon bucket, but I'll, I'll make it, uh, I'll, I'll, um, uh, for the sake of argument, I'll bring it down even smaller there. A two-gallon bucket is completely dry, and you take an eyedropper, and you put one drop of water in it. That's nothing, isn't it? And yet, God says that's what all the nations of mankind in all of history and all places are like when taken together to God. Not meaning he doesn't care, meaning as far as his bigness and our insignificance in ourselves apart from him being a gracious God, that's how little we are as an entire human race throughout all time before the bigness of God. Think of how big God really is. And then he switches metaphors. All the nations taken together are counted as the finest of dust on the scales. The fine dust doesn't move the scales at all. Okay, you go to the doctor and what's the first thing they do? They weigh you. So let's say you go and you get weighed and you don't like the number they give you. And for some of us that would be about every time. 
So you step off the scales and you say, listen, is it okay if I got down and I took my handkerchief and I dusted off any dust that might possibly be on that scales? I want to see if I weigh better. They, they wouldn't even, they'd probably just laugh at you. If there's any little bit of dust in those scales, it's not, that didn't change your weight at all. That, that's not why you didn't weigh the amount you wanted to weigh. And God uses that picture to say this is what we are like to God, the entire human race. From Adam and Eve to the very last baby born before the second coming of Christ, it can all together were counted as the dust on the scales. That is, any claim we have upon him, you see this, any claim we have upon him is because he is this gracious God who as God the Son came of his own free will and took to himself human nature and died for our sins and rose. We, we would have no claim upon him. If you've, if you've studied the Westminster Confession of Faith, you know when it comes to the chapter on covenant of God's covenant with man, it actually says that God is condescending to even relate to us by way of a covenant. It, we have such high views of what we are as, as humanity. You know, we're, we're so great, we're, we're, we have all these inventions, and really before the Almighty God, we're puny nothings, if not for him being not only great in power, but also great in his mercy and grace. It, it's, that's why we matter to him, not because we deserve it, but because, because not only is he omnipotent, but he is all good and has an infinite kindness toward his people. He says here, God, uh, and here we're looking at um, verse 15, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. That, by the way, can also be translated the coast, the isles, uh, coast. You look in the Hebrew lexicons, it's either or. Whether you're talking isles or the coast, all the nations, he's saying basically, that border on the oceans and seas. So that's all the nations, you see, ultimately are counted as nothing. And he carries them as if they weighed nothing. That's another way to translate this. He lifts them up. You know, there's just nothing there. Um, like when you hold a newborn baby, and then you hold that child a year later, there's some real difference there, isn't there? And it's more like the newborn baby. There's, there's no real weight there. And again, we're talking about the whole human, nation, uh, nation, uh, human race. Uh, another way of saying that the nations of humanity are as nothing before this almighty God as far as his power and his bigness. Remember, this was written when the mighty Assyrian Empire was throwing its weight around. And God is going to allow them to destroy northern Israel. That's happening in Isaiah's day. And he's going to allow... Assyria to beat up Judah. It's the whole story with Hezekiah and Jerusalem surrounded and all that. Um, and this is not God out of control. God's in charge of all of this. He's not intimidated in the least by Assyria or by Russia or by China or by the USA or by any Arabic coalition. We are as nothing before his infinite greatness. Therefore, verse 16 we can do nothing for God in an objective sense of having any needs that we can fulfill, God having any needs that we can fulfill by all our worship and sacrifices. 
He says, verse 16, Lebanon's not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. Lebanon was this great forested mountain region. So let's just plug New England in there. All the forests of New England aren't enough to burn. Um, and um, all the animals of that region, and there'd be a lot of animals, right, in, in your great forested regions, all the trees of New England, all the animals of New England aren't enough to make sacrifice that could pay for even one of our sins. The book of Hebrews reminds us that animal sacrifices don't take away sin's guilt anyway. They only point to the, the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as that which does remove guilt. So God is so big that not all of those trees taken together to burn all of those animals taken together can appease his holy wrath against sin. That's the point he's making here. But let's uh, think ahead to where he's going to go with this. Ultimately, by the time you get to chapter 53 of Isaiah, how big is Christ then in God's eyes? And how big is his sacrifice in God's eyes? If it is sufficient, and it is, to take away sin. All the, all the forests of New England, all the animals in those forests, couldn't make enough of a sacrifice to take away one of our sin. And Christ, whoever he is, whatever it is he's doing on the cross, it's big enough that all the sins of all the elect are atoned for immediately. See, the bigger our view of God, really the bigger our view of what's happening in the incarnation, and the bigger our view of what what the cross, what's really happening there, would be. Verse 17 sums it up. All nations before God's face are as nothing, and all together counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. They amount to nothing before his infinity. They are of no value to him before his all-sufficiency. So how should we view ourselves before the almighty God? There's no measuring God, there's no instructing of God, there's no impressing God, because he's unmeasurable, he's omniscient, he's immense, beyond compare with all of creation, much less with puny humankind. And so that brings us to verse 18. How dare we think we can compare him to anything in creation by making dead idols or by inventing our own view of deity? Verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The very attempt is blasphemous. It is evil, foolish, damnable. And so to think we have a right to complain about the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, the Almighty God, to think that our opinion amounts to anything of significance before his great eternal plan. To think we can figure him or his ways out or his plan out. To think that he needs our permission or our approval in any way for anything. It's wrong. Fellow sinners, have you foolishly tried to judge the Almighty God? Have you tried to advise the infinite creator, at least deep down in your heart, when things weren't going the way you wanted them to go? How dare we think that we know better than he or that we could call him to account for any of his ways or any part of his great plan that includes all things? Have we tried to reinvent him 
in our puny image, rather than be thankful that as a human being, we are a very small likeness of him, at least originally before sin spoiled that likeness. And this is why we need to repent of our sinful thoughts and ungodly words and ways before the Almighty God. This is why we need to seek reconciliation with him by that one means that is sufficient, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, who as the Son of Man died for our sins and rose again to justify all who turned to, to the one true God by him. Again, I want to close with what I've tried to challenge us with throughout this message. Who is this baby whose birth we celebrate in, in Western culture at this time of the year? Who is this baby? He's this God. This